Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome back to No Finish Line podcast. This episode is a recording of a recent Q&A I did with Matthew McConnell from Great Outdoors. And in this episode we talk about running, training, adventure, racing... We talk about gear and equipment for the outdoors and the items that I use myself. We talk about some of my adventures. We talk a little bit about nutrition and also strategies for racing. So hope you enjoy. How's your running going at the moment, John? What were you out today or I wasn't out today because I got a bit distracted in between work and then, of course, trying to you know make sure that I was here on time for this. Although I've I've arrived yeah. late now, I was waiting <laughs> ten minutes beforehand. But with the first lockdown, I found it a bit difficult with with that one because I was in such a, a, a regular routine when I was working, where my lunch break I would head over to the great outdoors, maybe. I might take a walk mm-hmm. around town. So I was getting a lot of exercise done during the day. But then when I started working from home, I just noticed that I was still running the same, but I was starting to put on a bit of weight. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And it was only then I, I kind of looked at the step count on my watch and I noticed that my, my steps were down. So that's something that originally I didn't think I needed on the watch because I was thinking if you're somebody who is motivated enough to go out and train you don't need these little things to kind of motivate you but that yeah. was a way of me measuring and both realizing what I wasn't doing so I was then able to make the adaption so now I'm kind of back into a routine I'm walking a bit more in between my running sessions and that has helped maintain my my weight level even though it is a bit higher than what it, it was maybe two years ago but it, it's helping me to kind of you know keep an eye on things now that's definitely something that um i'm seeing a through line here between a lot of people i've been talking to like with ian keith last week uh one thing that he started to do with his training is jumping on the turbo in the morning and the evening to sort of simulate a commute or that kind of thing yeah I, I, um, they're the things that i miss because you know, I would have been walking to the bus stop or walking to the train station, then walking from there to the office. When you work, the, the toilets are that bit further away. You're you're going out for a, maybe a coffee break. And all those little things, they all add up. Walking up and down the steps all the time, all those things add up. There was actually a study done back in, I can't remember what decade it was, but a doctor noticed that a lot of the patients coming into him said, that it was the, the guys who were, were in the lesser paid jobs who were doing more work that seemed to suffer less from heart disease. So he did a study on the bus workers and he found out that the bus drivers had a higher incidence of heart disease than the conductors who were walking up and down steps and stuff like that. And then he did something similar with the postal workers. The postmen had a, were much healthier than the guys who were actually working in the postal offices. So... That's I suppose one of the, his name was uh, gee, I'm drawing a blank on his name now, but it was because of him that I think we started to introduce. We had to start introducing exercises into our life. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. Like I, I feel like a lot of people are discovering um, running for the first time, even even throughout yeah. this sort of COVID period. And that that's something that I I mentioned in the little intro there that I wanted to talk to you about, like the together apart we run that you've set up with. Uh, Roz and Rachel Purcell um, sort of so what's your experience been with that and sort of like going from coaching athletes in like an individual athlete at a time to like now developing these plans for thousands of people well virtual runs is never something that I was really into but now I can see a reason for it and it was Roz that had contacted me because I had done a little bit of work before and she contacted me with this suggestion and did I want to get involved so between the three of us which, like all oh, you have the easy part of it just to put up the training plan so that's that's done but Roz and Rachel they look after the most part for like uh, putting the stuff up on the site and they look after the stories and they kind of keep it going they kind of keep the momentum going so it was a great way of being able to I suppose, reach out to so many people and I felt, couldn't believe the actual reach that it got and the amount of people that have actually got involved like there's, there's close to 30,000 people following the page and following the plans and it's great to see so many people who are benefiting from having uh, having a target set out for them. 
Like what we've done is with the first one is we set a di- an end date for for the plan, and not everybody I suppose is has practiced goal setting, so we were able to set something for them, and that made it made it easier for them to achieve it. Because if you don't have an end date, if you don't have a goal, it doesn't matter if you don't train today, if you don't train tomorrow. Because you can always do it the next day and then you don't have to do it the next day. But if you have a target in mind, every day matters and you have to do the training in order to do the training. So if you want to be doing progressing to a five kilometer run, you've also got to do the runs that are going to take you there. You can't just go out and do it. So that's the benefit of following some form of a plan. Now, this one that we did was, was fairly basic. We've been erring on the side of caution, so there's less chance of anybody picking up an injury. But our target audience is really people who haven't been involved in exercise to any big extent. Like, And it's great the amount of people that are touching. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's been incredible to see, even just from afar, to sort of witness the the page, as you say, grow to now like 30,000, as you say, yeah, people um, following along plans. Um, and the more people that are out and about, the better, I suppose, once, uh, yeah, once we all yeah. move on from, and then, from COVID and stuff, it'll stick. The first one was so successful that we did a follow-on by popular demand. And it is great to see people actually, as you said, we've people now who are running for the first time, for some now because of what, what's happening. Like running is an easy an easy sport. You just have to close your door. You don't need any special equipment. You don't need a lake. You don't need a mountain. You, you just go out and you mm. do it. And what's happening is because there's not much choice now, it's easy to make the decision, the decision of what to do. And it's when somebody starts getting involved in a bit of exercise, they then realize that they're enjoying it. And when you enjoy it, you'll do a bit more. And the more you do, the more you can do. So that increases your enjoyment. Now, there is also the flip side of the coin with that as well because it's very easy to overdo something. You can start liking it too much. And the same as with anything, if you, know, if you drink to excess, if you eat to excess, and the same as if you exercise to excess. And doing the same thing, so you have to be both disciplined enough to take breaks. And that's where the plan comes in as well because the plan would have set, set rest days and then easy training runs as well. So I think following a plan is a good idea. If you're going to get involved in exercise, even, you know, couch to 5k app on your phone, you don't need anything fancy, but just, I think it is good to follow something. Yeah. And do you think then sort of going on to somebody who is maybe a little bit more experienced with running and has been doing it for a couple of years um, and has experience with following plans, um, do you think it's a good idea to sort of experiment within that plan because one thing that um i was talking to ian keith about last week um was the thing the things that he likes doing is like loading up a heavy bag uh, full of water and doing hill reps that way to build strength in the legs so somebody who wants to hit run hill races is it a good idea to somehow experiment with that sort of aspect of strength-based things as well you've got to put it into context Okay, and the content of what you do is shaped by the context of what you want to do. So you said he's he's training for not just a hill race, like a Nimra hill race. He's training for something that goes on long and for days. And the bag that he's carrying in training is simulating what he'll be carrying during his races. Now, he's probably carrying a bit more in the bag weight-wise, but with fatigue setting in, that would simulate what he's going to experience in the later stages of a race. Now, we're not talking hours, we're talking days. So if you mm-hmm. were somebody who's training for a hill race, yes, then it was beneficial to be running on hills, but all you'll be more focusing on increasing increasing strength, but for the forward motion rather than just kind of carrying something. So that I'd be working on power. So you maybe incorporate some hill sprints, and I think that they can be very, very beneficial. And for hill training, you want to be doing hill sprints for going up a hill and then doing some training for running downhill as well but for the most part and the safest part is training for uphill running on something that isn't too steep as an idea of of an angle would be if you were in a multi-story car park if you look at the ramp that brings you up to the next floor you'd be looking at something that would maybe be half that angle and two or three times the length of it simple yeah, okay, so I, I think you might have cut out a little bit there, just, okay, just in I the thought, middle of that answer. I thought you I, cut out. <laughs> oh, right, okay, well... Then no, 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 no that's, you, you froze on me, but I suppose you'll probably see me freezing, so it's... Uh, well, I wasn't I wasn't talking, so okay. that's totally fine then. <laughs> yeah, you, you, um, you had struck a pose. But, 
<laughs> That's all good. Um, so one question that I had for you was m- moving on from COVID, we're hopefully yeah. looking at the end of this yes. in the next couple of months, fingers crossed. Moving on from this, how has how will it have changed your own training, but also the way that you're going to deal with athletes in sort of a coach-athlete relationship? Well, for me, I like to be able to see what's in front of me rather than just kind of talking to somebody over the phone or that. So when I'm up at the track, it's really, really easy. And generally what I would do is I have a, I have a plan laid out, but I would say that the, the plan is set in stone, but it's subject to change. So you always have mm. to be willing to change. And I'd always check and see how people are, how are you, how are you feeling, how was your day, what did you do before we're going to decide on what we want to do. And everything you do kind of depends. You have to be, there has to be a readiness to train. And the same as if you're going off doing a hill run. If, if you've been doing a long run or a long cycle on a Sunday and you want to go out and do something on a Monday, although you might be feeling okay, like you're, your heart and lungs are okay, but there could be some damage done to your muscle. Your legs haven't fully repaired. And if you start overworking them before they have recovered, you're there. What you're actually doing there is delaying the adaption and you could be negating the adaption. So you have to be able to decide on, on, on what is a readiness to train to allow you to go again. So that's something I miss is being able to be up at the track and kind of uh, watch that. But big thing for me uh, for when we do come out of lockdown is trying to get back to the hills because I find I, I do enjoy being out running or walking in the hills and walking in the forest. I think it's kind of good for the soul as well and it's it's a lot easier run uh, physically it can be it can be harder but mentally it's easier to be running in the in the hill in the mountainous or forested area because you know all you when you when you stop the, it kind of invigorates you no matter what the weather is I'm kind of missing that now just running on running on yeah. the roads and that so that's what I'm looking forward to getting back out to the Dublin mountains and a trip to Wicklow yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I'm not looking to boast, but I'm very lucky that I'm very close to a lot of the Dublin yeah, mountains yeah, well, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. where I'm located. But um, just, just on, no, I don't, don't want to, I won't dwell on that topic yeah. too much. Um, but what you brought up there was uh, sort of days out in the hills and stuff like that. What sort of gear are you bringing with you, even going into like spring, summer now, um, on a day out or like a long run in the hills. Okay. Well, even on on the best of days, you have to dress for bad weather or be prepared for bad weather. So I, I have a small backpack. I have a, an Osprey backpack. I can't remember what size it is. And that has a lot of pockets on the front, which are very, you know, very easy to get what you want. And then a bigger pocket in the back. So I'd always carry a small first aid kit, not necessarily for me, you know, that I'd be expecting to use it, but you might meet somebody who might need, you know, got a bee sting or they scuffed mm. their knee. I have a small survival shelter inside it. Again, just in case I kind of meet somebody of a compass, I carry my my phone. I've only now when I carry the phone. Recently, I've kind of out of boredom. I started taking photographs and doing little videos. But I, I try not to use the phone too much. I, I'd like to keep that uh, for emergencies. And I probably carry a gel, I've a whistle, a uh, rain jacket. And that's that will be what I carry in the bag. And then, and then my, my watch, I use a Garmin 945, which I think is probably the, the best all-round watch out there, especially for a runner. But that has maps on it. So when, when I go to any of the areas around Wicklow or Dublin, I have access to a really, really good map that'll tell me where I am and it kind of helps me with getting to where I'm going, following Waymark trails and that. So that's really, really good. And are, are you sort of plotting a route and then following it on the watch during no. it or are you just no, so, so, using some, it as a... Sometimes I'll, I'll just take take a turn. Oh, sorry, I would have a map as well. There's, like carrying a compass yeah. but you really need a map as well so I carry the map and I have a general idea of where I'm going and then every so often I kind of take out the map and I use that to kind of practice a little bit of what I'm doing where I'm going and then I might use the watch then to double check what I'm doing and sometimes with I've I've made wrong calculations like, like using the map and compass and looking at the watch then it might help put me right but I use that as kind of a, a learning thing as well but for the most part in my head before I, I even go away, I'm, I have it visualised where I'm going to go, and I generally stay in the areas that I'm that I am going to go. But if if there was something that kind of 
groom me in a different direction if I've seen a path I might go up and explore it and then I'd start you know looking at uh, what might be around me because there's a feature in the watch that says that you can tap it in and it'll tell you how close you are to different peaks and different trails so to me it's it's like a mini adventure mm. even though you're you're in an area that you're very very familiar with yeah so even in an area that you would be quite familiar with it's still even sort of just as an experiment for yourself yeah, to yeah it's practicing my navigation and i i did you know, mountain skills course and that and it's always good to have something to back up and these things need to be practiced as well like uh skills are mainly perishable if you don't use them you lose them you know that you have mm-hmm. to kind of keep yourself keep practicing these things and when you're out on your own it doesn't really matter if you're taking long breaks to double check like you it's only you that's involved in the decision making you've no one telling you to hurry up or do whatever and i kind of like that just going off yeah. going off in the long run and taking a break and it doesn't matter if you go left or you go right sometimes the terrain will dictate where you go over river is flooded you might just go a different direction or you know and from from a sort of perspective do you use strava or are you are you no. using that at all i i had used so what, what's your opinion on on sort of because something that I I will definitely own up to is like getting emotion or sort of training off emotion occasionally where it's like, oh, my watch bleeped and there's a segment coming up. Um, obviously, that's something you're trying to avoid. But how do you, you just completely cut it out? But do you have any athletes yeah. that would be well, like do, that? See, what would I, you recommend? With, with the club, I had set up a Strava account just so I could, you know, could kind of see what people are doing. They, you know, and same, they'd be looking at what I was doing. And then I, I I just got bored. It was like to me, it's it's entertainment. And I tell you what mm-hmm. really turned me off. It during last year there was an outage with Garmin. They were held for ransom, and Garmin Connect wasn't working. But what was happening then was Garmin wasn't communicating with Strava, and that seemed to be upsetting a lot of people. That there's data wasn't going across to Strava, and I think, but you have access to the training information there, and then I could see that. People were using these things for the wrong reasons. And one thing I noticed with Strava then when I was training on the track was, say if we're doing reps of 400 metres and you're doing a session with recoveries and then you have a longer break between sets, Strava cuts out a lot of the breaks. And it, mm. it gives you an inaccurate uh, view of what you're capable of doing. So there's people setting 5K and 10K PBs because they're taking breaks. And mm-hmm. they're claiming that... And then by claiming that, it's like somebody posting up something, you know, uh, a photoshopped photograph on Instagram. And then somebody sees that on Strava and they're thinking, Geez, I'm not really that good myself. You know, I have to, this person's a great runner, I'm not. And they can be a bit disheartening in some ways. Well, so that's what I, that's something I don't like with Strava. Or, or, or somebody might do 100 kilometers cycle in 10 hours, but they stop for two hours and then they post a photograph that just shows their moving time rather than stoppage time. And stoppage time, I think, should always be included. I never stop my watch. And Garmin gives a truer indication of what you've actually done. Yeah. Looking like they're going faster than they are. i just just yeah. wondering if that might be a design, yeah, well, a design the, technique. Look, the same, the same thing happens with Garmin. You, you look back at Garmin Connect and I might say, you've been running at an average pace of five minutes a kilometre your fastest pace was 3.30. But that's mm. that's just a spike. The same way as you get a heart rate spike. You can, also, you can also get a pacing spike. And people believe that. They believe what they want to believe. And, you know, so you're, you're getting, in a way, a false sense of your ability. And you mm-hmm. know, I just don't like that. No, so, well, just taking a bit of a, a step back there for a minute, because I feel like both of the, both of the Instagram lives that we've done together... Um, we've sort of dived straight into the the technical aspects of training, right. and I haven't really given you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your running background okay. and what sort of got you into this sport. Well, martial arts was my sport, so I kind of came from that, and I was waiting for a bus on uh, Wicklow Street. Went to the chapters, and I bought a book called Survival of the Fittest. Read about a race there, Marathon de Sable, which I'd known about. But you know about these things, but you don't think it's something that you can do or you'd ever get to do. But reading this book made me believe, yeah, actually, ordinary people do these things. I signed up for the race, started training for it, and that was 150 miles in the Sahara Desert. And then 
I suppose I took a I went back to the martial arts after that I met up with Mark Pollock through a friend Mark was planning on doing a race similar in the Gobi Desert I wasn't training with Mark at the time I was helping him a bit with their training because I was the the local expert because nobody else around had done something similar so I was kind of you know living off that for the time then when Mark came back from the Gobi (laughs) Desert yeah well that's it I think you know, I, I didn't really know much better then, but but I thought by believing the hype at the time, that was kind of a barrier to me improving. And it was only when I then started, I suppose, reigning in the ego that I started to realise the benefits of training and trying to get better. And when I started looking at other people, I realised that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. So I made it my business to get better. I started doing a little bit of training with Mark and then we ended up doing a race at the North Pole. We kind of planned that when we were out in the training room. Now, the reason that happened was I'd heard about the race and I'd also trained in Arctic survival. And I just happened to be telling Mark that I would like to maybe go and do a race in a cold environment, similar to the Martin de Saab, that would allow me to, I suppose, try out my Arctic survival skills. And I mentioned to Mark about the race at the North Pole. And before the run was over, it might have been only been our first or second run together, but before that was over, we had decided that we were going to the North Pole. And after coming back from the North Pole, I went to the Yukon, did a 100-mile race in the Yukon, and it just continued on from that. Yeah. I just started looking look at other stuff. What was it about that book or that story that you just happened to pick up that okay. then translated to you actually going and doing the right. event. Well here's, was there yeah, like- well, here's the thing. I was watching, watching it on Eurosport and you're looking at these things and it's so far out of your reach. You know, you listen to some people talking, they really over-dramatise these things that they're doing. But the human beings were very, very adaptable and all it takes, training, I think the right clothing and then you can, you can perform in any environment. So because like, in that book, it was Dr. Mike Stroud. Now, the reason I got the picture of the book was it featured Ronald Fiennes. And he's someone who I took a bit of an interest in. I was kind of following some of his, his exploits. And that book was somebody who I felt was being honest about what it took to actually do this. And because of that, I suppose, I try and be the same. Now, if I think something is tough, I'll say it. But I don't over-dramatise things now because... I want to encourage people to do these events the same way, way as I did them. And to me, they're great experiences. You know, there is always a certain risk, but there's a safety net with all these races. No matter where you go, there is a safety net. And you can have accidents doing the Dublin Marathon. Now, I know it, the, the risk has increased when you go somewhere, somewhere like the desert. It isn't, the, you know, there isn't the same health and safety. But if you're going into a desert environment, you're going to be that bit more prepared and you probably have less chance of getting sunburn in the Sahara Desert than you would out in Port Marnock Beach during the summer. And why is that? Mm. Because you're going to be extremely cautious in the Sahara Desert. You could have more chance of getting hypothermia or frostbite in the Wicklow Mountains during the winter around Lugnaquilla than you will going somewhere like the Yukon or Antarctica because you're not going to take a chance when you go there. You're not going to let your guard down. You're going to be overly prepared. When I went to Antarctica for the, when I did the seven marathons, seven continents, seven days, you would assume that Antarctica was the toughest race, but it turned out to be the easiest race because you over-prepare. It's the other races where you start to let your guard down because, oh, it's only in a big city. That's going to be easier, but it's not easier. And that's mm-hmm. when you get complacent. So you have to stay sharp when you're doing these things and give the, give the races respect, do the training, and they are manageable. So I'd say if anybody is listening and if if you would like to do a race like the Marathon de Saab or go like you decide that you can't do it. If you want to do it, chances are you will do it. And that that's what I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean it's it's a good thing to sort of live by. And it was again something that Ian Keith also said was like the sort of just do it mentality. If it's if it's if there's that intrinsic motivation that you really want to go and prove that yeah. you can do this thing. No, it's just do it, but you have to put the work in before you go. Now mm-hmm. so you have to do the training. And if you're going to, if you're going to an extreme environment, you do the training, but you also have to have the, the right clothing, the right, the right equipment 
and that is key to your survival and that's what makes these things manageable so you, you have to you know you have to say dot the i's and cross the t's so you have yeah. to be, now if you were going somewhere like antarctica there's a kit check before you can board a plane couple of days before you can board a plane so you will not be let go there unless you have the proper equipment i mean that's the that's the real deal like that's no joke no um, no they don't leave anything to chance there if you if you're not going to be ready to go there you won't go and when i went to everest base camp with mark pollock for the tenzing hillary everest marathon every couple of days we were being checked by the medics they were checking their blood pressure and whatever else make sure we weren't suffering from uh, the effects of altitude so again, mm-hmm. you know, there's that, uh, there's a safety net there. You know, if you do want to do one of these events, yeah, just do your research, do the training and be properly prepared with, with the gear because you can't buy your way over a problem when you're halfway up a mountain in the Himalayas. You know, if, some, if something goes wrong, there goes wrong. And one thing I'll say is good gear isn't cheap and cheap gear isn't good. And you need to know that you can depend on what you're wearing, on what you're carrying, because it, your life could depend on, on it in some cases. But like if, you were, like if you were rock climbing, you're not going to be wearing a cheap harness. Or, now, when I was going to Everest Base Camp, bag that's on your back, you're carrying it for, for days, and you want to make sure that that's fitting you properly and that you have access to everything that you need in the bag. And actually, here's a little trick that myself and Mark did, because we were buddied up going there. The two of us had the same type of a pack. It was a small North Face day pack. I was carrying his bag and he was carrying my bag. So if I needed something, I took it out of his bag. If he needed something, he took it from my bag. The only thing that we had for ourselves was the uh, drinking the bladder with the straw. So that's that's the only, but apart from that, we, we had each other's gear. No, that's a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant little tip. Um so just on that one thing that you said there was uh, like having the gear check just before you go yeah. somewhere like Antarctica or something. And I just what popped into my head was we're, we have quite good delivery um, around Ireland, but we're not going to get you out of a sticky situation if you're on a flight in, in like South America, South America and you're flying to Antarctica. Um, but yeah. Um, how are you dealing with the idea of now they're being, or your athletes even, um, they're now potentially being races at the end of the summer. Um, as far as like a training, structuring a, a training block now, are you s- suggesting that people stretch it out um, or have like a little mini event that you set yourself in the middle of that time? Well, luckily, there have been a lot of virtual events on. I think people have stayed training. And then I've also seen that people have stayed training in the hope that races are going to happen. Because a lot of race organisers didn't cancel their races until the last moment. So people have, you know, maintained that sharpness and, and that mm. fitness. But I, I would think that when races are, are properly annou- announced that you know, it would be advisable to kind of follow a plan. And I always like to think of it in the way that, you know, you have special forces, soldiers training. They're ready for any eventuality. They're always trained. And then when something happens, just say as an example, if there was a hijacked plane was at the landing in Dublin, these guys have been training for these events, but then they get specific and they train specifically for that task in hand. So I would say with the racing keep or say with the training keep the most part of it easy say 80% of what you're doing should be relatively easy and then other stuff a little bit hard then when you know there's something coming up you have that foundation laid and the longer you're laying that foundation the stronger it's going to be and the easier it is for you to absorb the harder training so Mm -hmm. base building and working on your aerobic capacity like although that easy running the one played out chatting and able to breathe that's building up your red blood cells the blood capillaries increasing the mitochondria in the cells which 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 store the fuel so there can be a lot of benefits from this and you might have noticed over the last couple of days that there have been a lot of fast time set in athletics events now you can say partly it's to do with chew technology but you also have to put the work in because technology won't work on its own so people are benefiting from the training that they've managed to do without having to spend it 
So training, or say racing doesn't get you fit. Actually, racing takes away your fitness. It makes you unfit and damages your muscles. It's the training that does it. So it's like saving up money and then you're spending it when you're doing the race. So now what's been happening is they've been saving up all this fitness and because they haven't had a race, they haven't been spending it. So they've been banking all this. And then when the time comes around to do something, you know, you have your, I suppose, there's less chance of maybe being overtrained for for somebody who is used to training and something special then could happen so get specific when you know the event is going to happen yeah and and how far out like say you were training for like i don't know um like a 5k or something or something um how far out are you starting to implement really specific well, um I, training as opposed to just that build if you've been training regularly i'd say Give yourself about four weeks of you know, train uh, specific training. Now, when I say four weeks of specific training, that might be one or two sessions in each of those four weeks because you can't mm-hmm. just do that. For for every fast kilometer you want to do, I say it's good to have ten easy kilometers in the bank. So it's like that's that's the, kind of the energy cost of of running running fast. So you have to have have kind of built that up. So if you want to be making withdrawals you have to have something in the bank. So if you want to withdraw one fast kilometer from the bank, you have to have 10 easy ones in there. Otherwise, you're going to be using your credit card and you're going to be yeah. spending what you don't have and that has to be replaced. And chances are, you're not going to replace it and that's when you're going to go into a dip and you start going downhill. I mean, that's definitely something that I've thought about with my with my friends. If, if like, for example, one of us is out on a really wet miserable winter run and you're just thinking this is like this is putting the money in the bank putting the aerobic money in the bank as you say and then plus you know a day like that is going to control the pace as well so you can't go fast and that is the time Mm. when you're building that aerobic engine and then plus I suppose that gives you grit as well that's going to train you to be able to toughen it out on on those hard races yeah no, this is something that Jason said um, in one of our lives was like, occasionally if he's training for something where he knows he's going to be putting himself through it, he'll like go out in the middle of a winter storm on his bike. Yeah. Obviously trying to keep as safe as possible, but sort of like wintering the mind sort of uh, sort of approach to training. But uh, yeah, well, us, us outdoorsy people like them, like being miserable. Yeah. Like, that's all part of it. It's a weird sort yeah. of relationship. All right. Yeah. Um. So what, just a question came in there from Tom, thanks for the question, um, asking if you have any top tips for recovery. Yeah, okay, well, re- recovery is the is, is earned, I say, first of all, and then you, could, you should only do what you can recover from. Now, with recovery, this is something I'd also say uh, that depends. Depends on what you've done and what you want to do. If I was looking at building my leg strength, and I was actually doing a hard, hard session, I'd make sure that I'd be getting something that's high in protein into me. And kind of try and be spreading your protein intake out over a couple of hours and whatever. I'd avoid using any artificial means of recovery, such as the uh, those boots that they pump air into, mm. I forget what they call them, or compression socks. The Normatex or, yeah, or whatever that, that, they are. I, I'd avoid using anything like that because when you go into a hard session, you're looking at damaging the muscle to an extent and then you get inflammation and the body starts to repair itself. So it knows what it, it knows what it's done and by repeating that, it tries to get better so it, it can manage the training loads and volumes that you're putting it under. But if you start using these artificial means of recovery, then the body isn't adapting to it. So you're not getting the improvements that you're working at trying to get. Now, if I was doing a race next Saturday, maybe then I would start using the artificial means of recovery in in the two weeks leading up to it because you're not going to get fitter or stronger within the 10 days before you go and do a race. So then I'd be looking at maximising benefits from what I've done if you've done a hard interval session on the track maybe or if you've done a really long run then you know your fuel stores are depleted so then you want to make sure that you're getting carbohydrates into you as well and the, uh, just just on that the, yeah. the fueling for, for long runs yeah if you want to talk about that a little bit okay 
it again it, it will depend on what you're doing and how you do it but depending on how you're trained as well so if you're somebody who's really really well trained say like like Ian Keith who he he would have a really 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 strong aerobic engine stronger than than he probably realizes so he mm. would, would be predominantly fat burning that's what he'd be using with lipids the the fats that are in the uh, in and around the muscles he's using them mainly as fuel but in order to burn fat as a fuel there has to be oxygen coming in and there has to be some car there has to be glycogen in the muscle to come to carbohydrate glycogen is the flame in which the fat burns so there's a but it's only small amounts of it. But he's both has trained over a long period of time to be very efficient. But what happens is, if you're somebody who isn't as well trained, you will be needing to be consuming carbohydrate. And plus, if your pace is that bit faster, you become more carb dependent as well. That's when you're you're not getting in as as much oxygen. So generally, for myself, if I'm doing a long run. And depending on what the purpose of it is, if I'm just looking at putting time on feet and working my aerobic engine, then I probably would go for the most part without taking anything. Because again, I've, I've no problem with that. And I'm, I'm watching my heart rate. I'm staying aerobic. But mm-hmm. if I was doing something that bit faster, like if I was training for a 50k to 100k race, then to I suppose, extend the time it takes for me to fatigue, I would then start taking some carbohydrates in now they say that a well-trained athlete can take in between 60 to maybe 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour but that's very very hard to for the average person to actually consume so it's something that you would have to experiment with and play around with otherwise you're going to get gi issues that gastrointestinal Mm -hmm. issues now so i I did a race a, a couple of years ago and it was a faster pace race it was the Wings for Life World Run in, in Killarney. That one, that, the photograph you, you used to promote this, that's that's from that race. That was one of my questions, actually. Okay. Yeah, well, that's that was the... The story behind that picture. It looks, yeah. right, it looks quite intense. <laughs> now, during, the, during that race, I was running faster during that. So I went through the marathon in maybe 245, 250 thereabouts. So I was assuming that I was going to be taking gels. So I started taking gels from a certain point in it but because i i was also running the 24 hour races so i was very much aerobically developed and i was predominantly born in fats of the fuel so i was taking in these carbs i was taking in more carbs than my body was metabolizing so i started to cramp from them and that was a problem and i almost dropped out of the race I didn't think I was going to be able to go on that the cramp was that bad. So I just made myself get sick and I, I got rid of them. Then. then I just drank, got water from, there was an aid station, I got that. And then I just kept going. And I just said, I, I kind of toughened it out. I told myself, when I get to the marathon distance, I take a bit of a break. Now, when I say take a break, I didn't mean sit down. I just meant stop thinking about what I was doing. I'd still run, but I would switch off mentally. But then I noticed that the guy who was winning the race was up ahead. So I thought then, okay, well, I'll, I'll stay in the game now but I knew I could catch him before the catcher car came along and the gels nearly cost me that race because mm-hmm. I suppose I should have been running faster for the body to be able to metabolize the gels but I knew I wasn't fast enough to go faster if you get me yeah oh you mentioned the catcher car there if you want to just yeah. okay quickly, well, well, I, I think i think we had a discussion on the floor in great outdoors right. 18 or so months ago about this race but okay. it, it's a fascinating race I, if, you, you if you'd strateg- be able to share it. yeah and i'll tell you my strategy actually for that race well like when you're going into a race no matter what it is you have to apply a strategy whether that's a fueling strategy a pacing strategy but it's always rather than just going off running like a headless chicken so with the catcher car, what happens is you have the the car was at the start line, and it had what's like the timing mat, but it had it had a signal going from it. So when you ran past the car, it was like running over a uh, timing mat or, or under the gantry, and it activated mm-hmm. your chip. So then after one hour, the catcher car would start moving, and the catcher car would allow people to get to ten kilometers in one hour's ten. And then it picks up the pace. And then you could get to a marathon, a half marathon in, say, two hours, ten. And then it starts picking up. And then it would allow you to get to the marathon in 3.05 or, sorry, three hours. 
So I knew that it was running, it was moving at a set pace. So I planned out my rate and I was actually targeting 50k because I knew there weren't too many people who would be able to run 50k in the amount of time that it would take the car mm-hmm. to actually catch up. So I was comfortable enough with this, uh, with my strategy for this race. Now, when you're at the start line, you have, you know, this fight or flight syndrome that we all we all get. So you're either ready to fight or flight. And flight happens when you take off and then things start to settle. That adrenaline then becomes fuel. But it's a primitive instinct that because we knew the form of the race where we were being chased, people ran out of fear because they knew they were being chased. So they took off like bad out of hell. So I, I was nice and calm. I got straight into my pace for my for my marathon. I knew what I had to do. I was planning on getting to the marathon distance between 2.45 and 2.50. Now, the terrain kind of dictated a bit of what I was doing, but I just took off an easy pace. And then gradually, I just, just started reeling in people. And then I was told, you're in fourth place. And again, didn't get excited, didn't panic on you. I was still on track. So I could see the guy up ahead of me who was in third place. And... I watched him going past the lamppost and I counted in seconds in my head how, ma- how long it took me to get to that lamppost. And I would say it was 100. And then I counted again and then it was 90. So I knew I was catching him. So I didn't have to worry about him. And then when I caught up with him, I was running at an even pace. And when I caught up with him, I picked up the pace for a short bit. And he matched my pace. He was mm-hmm. slowing down, but I made him run faster. And then he dropped off and he was gone. So I was now in third place. And that's when I was having problems with the with the gels and made myself sick, whatever. And then somebody said to me, oh, you're in second place. And I said, well, no, I'm not in second place because I was in fourth place and I overtook one guy. And they said, well, the guy was in second place went stopped to go to the toilet. So he was very polite and he went into a, a local pub to use the toilet. <laughs> Inexperience. So I continued on and it's, uh, it was on a hill. It was on the... Uh, it was along the Kerry way, not the, the mm. Ring of Kerry. So I was on a bit mm. of a hill and I, I knew, okay, when I get to marathon distance, I'll give myself a break. I'll just switch off. And then I saw the guy who, who was leading it. So then I decided, okay, well, I'll make my way up to him. And uh, there's no samurai strategy. You appear weak when you were strong and appear strong when you're weak. So I was feeling tired at this stage. No, I won't lie. But the guy ahead of me didn't know that. And I could see that he was weak. So as I got up towards him, Rather than go the shortest distance, which was say two was right, I went a longer distance so he would see me and the bike that was leading the race, I went in between them more or less to, I suppose, uh, defeat him in a way and to kind of get him panicking. Mm. And again, I got myself very calm and composed as I was approaching him. And then when I got there, I was comfortable. And then I picked up the pace and I forced him to like he was walking at that stage and he had his hands up on his head and he had his elbows out so I knew that he was in trouble so I then forced him to run and to run faster than he was running and he stayed with me for, for a bit and then we got to uh, this guy another guy on the bike and he said do you want a drink of water and I said quiet he said yes please and I said no thanks even though I did want it and then mm. I knew, that, again, that was a sign that I was appearing strong when I was weak. And mm-hmm. I just took off then. And I made a good push until I kind of got around the bend. And then I got back into my stride. And I knew, by looking at my watch, okay, the catcher car is going to be very, very close now. So I knew that it would be catching that guy. And then a few minutes later, the catcher car came came past me. And I was but still, I, I didn't just stop. I waited until the car caught me. And then, yeah, it was last man standing. And then the prize was to take part in the Wings for Life the following year in any of the locations around the world. So, yeah, it was a good day out. That race just sounds like, like I, I love the sort of mind games that you're playing. And you often see this sort of cat and mouse um, in uh, like marathons and stuff where people are like sort of swerving over to one side of the road so that yeah. whenever they pass somebody so it appears that there's more of a gap than there actually is and yeah and then I, I did it in Georgia then the following year and that was quite an experience uh, Georgia beautiful place but that race went fairly okay I finished second in that race 
And I think that the guy who won was a couple ahead of me, but the organisers weren't expecting anyone to go as far as we had gone. So there was, there was no aid stations. And I was kind of planning, on, well, I, I, at that stage I needed water. And I was relying on what was being provided. Because if you're running for 50k, you don't want to be carrying bottles of water with you. I mean, fingers crossed we'll get get some cool travel done yeah. in the second I'm half I'm after giving away and... my strategy there now, so... If it's on again in Ireland, I won't be doing it in Ireland. I'll do it somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a question that came in there and then we'll wrap it up with some quick fire questions that yeah. I've got here. Um, so if anybody has any questions, throw them in now and I'll put them to John. But Matt asked, it's a great name. Um, what's the furthest single long run that you recommend someone doing training for 100K? Again, this will depend. If you're somebody who has ran 100Ks and you're competitive, I wouldn't go much more than 50, 60 kilometers far enough mm. away from the race. If you do it too close to the race, you're, you're going to be tired. But I think the longest run I would have done before any of my 100K races was probably 50K. I used to run from Leakslip out to Enfield along the canal, which was slightly mm-hmm. uphill, and then come back, which was kind of a net downhill. So you get a, get a bit of pace going back. Because... It's the cumulative volume of what you do over the course of a week or a month or a training cycle. And once you know that you're not suffering from any biomechanical problems after a run, then it becomes down to fueling. That you're able to keep the, keep the muscles fueled and maintain that muscle integrity. And you have a good aerobic engine on you. But some of the training runs you do now would have to be a lot faster than what you would be doing your, your 100k race at. Mm-hmm. So you're like as the distance goes up, your your pace goes down. Like if I was training for a twenty four hour race, I don't focus on distance. I focus on time. So because it's a time based format, so the longest run I would typically do in advance of a twenty four hour race would be around four hours. Well, wow. now but I would have That's... also done long races previous to that. So you when you have the you get confidence from experience when you know if you've done and what you mm-hmm. can do. And then you're not going into these events being very, very tired. Like, like a boxer doesn't, doesn't train for getting punches on the chin. You know, if it happens mm-hmm. today, it happens today. So you only only do in training what you can recover from and something that you can uh, build on. And, and in that training, you're experimenting with different fueling strategies and figuring all of that stuff out. Yeah, and yeah, then you would be, saying, over time, yeah, you, you, you would be. But a 100k race is generally a, fa- a fast race. Like if you're watching the Hoka One One event that was on there recently, mm-hmm. the, the guy who won that, he, he did two back-to-back marathons in sub-230. That's how fast he was going. Yeah. You know? So he would be very... Like, taking a lot of carbs not on board like when you're going above a certain pace you you can't rel- you have to be taking in a supplementary fuel so this thing about running on empty or whatever you know you do need you do need carbohydrates when, when the pace increases mm-hmm. you do need to be taking this in okay. it's only going to get you so far it's only going to get you so far yeah and then I think yeah. you've got to be careful with diets as well because there's the long term health implications as well so Diet is very, very important and you have to make sure that you have kind of a healthy, balanced diet and recovery after a session is really, really important. So 100K is a tough event. Yeah. Um, I th- well, we'll jump into some quickfire Q&As and if anybody has any, throw them in now and I'll add them to the list. Where will your first po- post-lockdown run be? I think I might know the answer to this one. Well, I would love to go down to the Comrie Mountains, but more than likely it's going to be up around Crewe or uh, to Braddon, you know, in that, yeah. that general area. And I also like heading down to Glendalough, of a few places, but the Comrie is somewhere that I, I would have visited quite regularly. I've gone into Rackormick and head into the mountains there. I go down there on my own quite a bit because it's not actually that far. And what I like about the Comrie Mountains is it's, it's like... In some way, it's like Wicklow, but kind of scrunched in together. So, yeah. so there's, there's nice lakes, there's nice cliffs, there's nice ridges. It is good. So the Comer Mountains are beautiful. Well, I'll add it to the list. So if you, Yeah, um, if you haven't been there, get down. Yeah, definitely. Um, An athlete that is inspiring you at the moment. Uh, 
I suppose that this was a question that was put to Ian and uh, and I thought it was worth adding to the list. Well, Mike Wardian is is a guy who I would have known for for a few years, and I've been kind of following him along his journey. I first met him at the hundred kilometer world championships back in maybe twenty ten, and he's a guy that I kind of like. A really really nice guy, and he was on, took part in one of these. Uh, backyard ultra events and he, he won mm-hmm. it but it was himself and another guy were going neck and neck on the treadmill and the other guy had a problem with his treadmill and he was disqualified and I could see Mike was kind of upset over that and he said look I don't mind if you let him get back on and go again like. and that's the kind of character he is uh, Katrina Jennings someone I, I was speaking to her uh, just recently and she's an, an Irish Olympian she represents Ireland now in ultramarathon 50k and she's very humble down to where so I always like chatting to her and I suppose Eddie Gallen one of my teammates who's based over in Spain uh, we call him Steady Eddie because you can always depend on him to, to score on the team mm-hmm. and he's somebody who's very very well respected in the world of ultra running really really nice guy I think we're kind of lucky to have him on our side and is he? I suppose he has kind of held with the Irish team to get on well with all the other nations because any time somebody sees you wearing the Irish kit, they say, "Oh, where's Eddie Gallon?" Yeah, that's great. Yeah, they'd be the guys now. I suppose I, I'd be thinking of uh, st- uh, straight off now. No, I mean I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the the leeway to name a, like four as you have there. That'll work too. <laughs> um, are you a morning or an evening uh, run person? I turned into an evening run person now just because of the way work is starting to happen now. I suppose I have a bit more time. So when you have too much time, you don't manage it as well. I've kind of drifted into going for runs in the evening time. Beforehand, I would have ran to work. I would have ran during my lunch break and that. But I have more time. So I've kind of evolved out of that. And I'm kind of telling myself, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I'm getting a bit more sleep. I'm maximizing on the sleep. But... Yeah, I think I've, I've kind of turned into more of, more of an evening runner now. And then just a question that, that popped in there. What do you think of training before breakfast in the morning? Yeah, you've got to be careful now with this, right? Because you have, if you're going to train before breakfast, that's something that will help your body to become post-fat adapted, become efficient at burning, utilizing fat as a fuel because you don't have that supplementary carbohydrate, supplementary fuel that's coming in from your breakfast. But what you got to be here's where you got to be careful now. When you get up in the morning and you go to the toilet, that is the time when night time your bladder will store more liquid, more urine than any other time in the day. Uh, it's just it's your body. You know, your body won't just wake you up to you know when you have a half fill. So when you go to the toilet, and when you go to the toilet, your bladder will compress all the way down, like, like one of these old whoopee cushions. The mm-hmm. walls will touch. If you go out running and you're totally empty, you can have what's called foot strike hyponatrine, I think of uh, no foot strike hemiotosis, whereby your there's trauma in your bladder and you can end up bleeding and passing blood. So it's very important that you have at least something to drink. If you're looking at, at trying to utilize fats as a fuel, have something that doesn't contain any calories. So maybe black coffee, mm-hmm. black tea, or hot water but have something and there's a benefit with having something like coffee because caffeine has what we call a thermogenesis effect which will encourage the body to burn fat as a fuel but if I was going doing now I'd only do an easy run if I was planning on doing something like a, a tempo or something harder I would be making sure to have some carbohydrates in so you need to be thinking uh, of fueling the fueling the activity if it's something nice mm-hmm. and easy Shouldn't be a problem. But just like, for example, like getting up in the morning and having a glass of water, having a cup of coffee and then going out for your run. Yeah, but make sure you have something. That'll negate the the issue, the potential. Something that will act as a buffer inside the bladder. So you're not... Now, I said it to somebody in my club one time because it happened to me. I had to be running and I was passing blood. And of course, I got got worried. And it's actually mentioned in, in Tim Lokes's book the law of running so if you if you have that book i'm sure somebody listening in has that book and they probably never read that part mm-hmm. have a look at that when it happened to me i went and researched it and i found out that this is something common i was able to correct it so i then said it to anybody i knew who was running i said it to somebody in my club and he said oh that happens to me quite a lot i said 
but did you not do anything about it? Did you not tell you that? No, because I was, I didn't want to kind of get the bad news. So that's actually while I think of it, that's something you have to be really, really careful. If you know something is wrong, go and see a doctor. Get yourself checked out. Yeah. Because, you know, run, any kind of activity can both highlight something where, where there is some kind of a problem. And I've often been, you know, in the car and I'd hear a noise that somebody else wouldn't hear. And you might be in somebody else's car and they'd feel that something isn't wrong. They're not going to keep driving the car. You get the car serviced. You don't wait till there's a problem. And same as with yeah. yourself, if something is giving you a signal, get it checked out. Mm-hmm. And would, like, even beforehand, would you recommend getting things checked out? Say, for example, you had an injury historically and you're sort of back from it now and it's not bothering you at all. Would you still continue to check in with your physio even if there's no sign that you've got an injury? Well, that, it depends on what the injury is. Because the body, mm. like the body, will heal an injury. If there is a problem, it's going to let you know. So, mm. you, I think it's important to be able to tell the difference between as well an injury and and just you know pain when you have to just want to suck it up and get on with it. So if mm-hmm. the pain is in one area, one side, one area, and it's localized and might be kind of a boring sensation, chances are that's an injury. If it's the same kind of a feeling on both sides, say you've a sore calf, but both your calves are sore, so it's symmetrical, you have a balance, mm. chances are that's just your calf muscles have been overloaded. They've done a bit more than they have been doing or and they're starting to get trained, adapt. That's part of the process. And that's when you just need to recover and allow them adapt and become stronger. But if it's said localised in the one area, that's an injury, get it checked out. It's like if you have a problem with one of your wheels, the tracking is off, the car will steer in one direction, that's when you're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not I'm not doing a very good job at mediating this quick fire uh, oh, section yeah, of well, the see, I, My quick fire answers aren't very quick fire. Well, I, th- I think they're quick questions, but you yeah. can elaborate on the answer. Okay. Um, but we're in the final few now. Um, right. One of my personal favourites. What are your favourite shoes that you're running in at the moment? Well, at the or moment, historically okay. your favourite shoes? Well, I'm wearing the Hoka Clifton 7. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm wearing. And before that, I had the 6. And before that, I had the 5. So that'll give you an idea of what my uh, favourite is. And I have an old pair of... Uh, speed goat I have the the force model of speed goat they're ugly looking things and they were they were the last pair in the shop they were in the old shop they were half price because nobody was getting them and I took a chance on them and I'm still wearing them now there's no grip really left on them but I'm still finding them comfortable when I'm out on forest trails I also have a Columbia trail shoe that I kind of keep for good wear you know if I was heading down to Wicklow and I need a bit of a grip and I have a Salomon Speedcross that have a very deep lug on them. And the next time I go to the Commerce, I'm going to wear them because the last time I was down, I did a bit of slipping and sliding. So I know I need a bit of a better grip. And that's where the Salomons come in. But they're not as good for running on hard-packed road because you do feel the shock coming up through them. But the yeah. Clifton 7, and that's, that's it- my favourite. That's, that's my... Yeah. No, I mean that, that. That's a very good one. I, I'm a, I'm partial to the six. I haven't migrated over to the seven myself, but it is something that we're we've got the new colours actually for this season that we that just landed like a week or two ago in the shop. Um, look really really cool. So I'll probably post a picture on the story yeah, do, do. Um, in the next little bit for for you to have a little bit of a gander. Um, what are your favourite other bits of of kit? My favourite piece of kit is my watch. My Gar- It's Garmin 945. And I would say that that is the best all-round watch. Now, I've been asked a while back to do some kind of a review on it. I'm thinking, I must get around to doing something, but I'm not going to do a, re- a review because reviews have been done. And it's a great watch. If you want to go look at a review, I say DC Rainmaker. And mm-hmm. I think it's his favourite watch as well. But I might actually write up something on the reason why I use it. And mm. The watch that I... So I think it's the best all-round watch for a runner. Now, if you don't need all the functions that are on it... Actually, the watch I recommend then, generally for people kind of starting out, is the Garmin 245. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great watch, but I wouldn't swap from what I have. I've been using Garmin since the Forerunner 101. (laughs) That's back in 2004, 2005. So I've gone all throughout the sequence, and I've used watches from other brands as well but I think the Garmin to me is is the world leader I, I wouldn't be changing from that 
No, I definitely would agree. Like the having a reliable way to measure your your training is is vital. Yeah, I might, I might follow. I might follow up with you on uh, getting some kind of review or not review, as you say, yeah. but some kind of well, why the, you the use reason, it. The reasons why I use it, yeah, and, and I don't, I don't think you'll you'll match this watch. There's no, I don't think there's anything out there that can compare with it. And now I've been given this by Garmin, but have also been offered other units, and I just no, did this is what I go for. No, it's 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 an amazing line of watches. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. I've exhausted the list of my Q and A's here. This is a really good, really informative uh, uh, chat there, John. So thanks very much for joining us. Um, we'll have to not leave such a big gap between lives next time. We might get you. Um, once you have that lovely run around the Comras or around Crew Mountain, we'll get you back on and discuss that. Yeah, um, we might even do the Comras together. That sounds like a plan as well. Get a Great Outdoors X No Finish Line collaboration going. Yeah. Give me a couple of weeks training before we meet up then. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a plan. Okay. See you. Oh, well, I'll, uh, I'll see you again, John. Thanks very okay, much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah. No problem. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.